Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Before we get started, I just want to flag that this story centers around a horrible case. There's lots of violence against women, so please be warned. Okay, if you're still here, we're going to start this episode on the 9th of March, 2004. This is when a health official in British Columbia gave a really disturbing press conference. His name was Dr. Perry Kendall, and he stood up in front of the Canadian press to announce that a whole bunch of pork from a farm in Vancouver was being analyzed for human DNA. And he admitted this, like he delivered this message in a very dry kind of police way. And what he said is, it's very disturbing to think about, but there is the possibility of some cross-contamination, but the degree of it or when or or how much of it, we, we really don't know. At that time, what he did know and what police knew was that the remains of 22 women had been found on a pig farm on the outskirts of Vancouver. The farm was owned by a man named Robert William Picton, or Willie for short, and he'd spent almost 20 years quietly murdering women on his property. Eventually, it was discovered that 49 people had died at his hands, and he'd usually disposed of their bodies by feeding them to pigs, or sometimes, and this is horrible, by grinding them up into mints, which he mixed in with pork and gave away to his friends as Christmas presents. And that's what the authorities were freaking out about in 2004 two years after Picton was arrested. He's actually Canada's most prolific serial killer, and Vancouver is a small place with about half a million people living there when he was arrested. So lots of people knew him. He actually used to throw these big parties up on his farm, and and thousands of people attended over the years. And when sex workers started vanishing from Vancouver's streets, 
No one considered that the dirty pig farmer with the parties might have something to do with it. And that's what I find so interesting about today's interview. I'm talking with Lorraine Murphy, and she's a journalist, and she's, she's kind of a big deal. You can read her work in Vanity Fair and The Guardian. But before all of that, back in 1990, she knew Robert Picton. Or actually, she, she kind of went on a date with him. And like I say, it was, it was a kind of, because she found him so repulsive that it almost wasn't a date. But like I say, the thing that I find interesting about this story is that it highlights how serial killers fly under the radar. To Lorraine, Picton was just a creep. A very big one, sure, sure, a very big one, but, but maybe not a nationally significant one. And I, I think this is just what happens. When serial killer cases emerge, we're all like, how did nobody notice? But this is how. Lorraine is going to describe how she didn't realize, but also how the city deliberately, or pretty much deliberately, turned its back on what was happening. Lorraine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Julian. It's nice to be here. Let's go back to the year of 1990. Tell me how you came across Robert Picton. Well, I was attempting to break into journalism back then, and I was always on lookout for a story. I didn't know what I was doing, but um, legendary jazz bar closing last night coming up. That's a big story. And I knew that was a big story, and I knew that editors were older than me, and maybe they'd gone there, and maybe they were fond of the place, and they might buy a story. So I thought I would go. Um, First time I ever went to a jazz bar in my life, all I knew is you have to wear a black turtleneck, so I did. Um, And I get there, and um, this was way back in the day. People nowadays wouldn't really understand the context if they weren't there then, but for instance, people taking pictures at events like this were rare. Usually it would be like a hired photographer or a PR or something. Um, but there was this fellow, bandy ginger, hopping around, uh, taking pictures everywhere with this very expensive camera and tripod. It was extremely unusual to have seen at the time. And I'm sitting there taking notes, you know, trying to be a beatnik mm-hmm. and journalist and all of those things. And I thought, well, if he's got pictures, that'll help sell the article. Yeah. Um, But I did notice as he was taking all these pictures, people turned away from him, literally turned away from him when he came up to them. And I thought, well, something's up with that. But what the heck, I want want these pictures. So I waved him over, and he came and sat at my table, and we talked a bit. And he was very flattered that I was interested in his photographs. Um, And he he said, uh, I would – I've had a few pictures in cannabis magazines – And I have so many pictures at my place in the country. He called it his place in the country. You should come out and see them. I have memorabilia out there and so many stories I could tell you. You should come for a barbecue. And I was like, "Mm -mm -mm," thinking to myself, hell's going to freeze over first, but uh, do go on. I really want these pictures. Uh, I I was in my 20s at the time, and I was naive, but I thought I was Nancy Drew crossed with James Bond. I thought I was being so slick. Mm. Um. But anyway, he agreed to meet up later once he'd had the pictures developed because at the time you had to send the pictures to a lab and they'd get developed and then you'd get them back a few days later. So he said that he would call me when he got the pictures developed and what was my number. He was very persistent about what was my number. But I said, no, no, I'm the journalist. I'll call you. In other words, I'm not giving you my number, idiot. Um, So I took his number, wrote it down in my notebook, and um, then he invited me to come into the back room and he brandished a blunt and 
more or less invited me to smoke weed with him. And I happen to hate weed. I'm like the only person from Vancouver who hates weed. But I hate weed, so I just said no. And he went into the back room. And the minute he was in the back room and out of eye shot, two men that I'd never seen before in my life came over and sat down at my table without, without an invitation or anything. And one of them, this older fellow, gray hair and a beard, very hippie looking, he said, Willie's not taking you home, is he? And I said, no, why? And he goes, because not everyone's nice. And then he just got up and walked away. Wow. I've never, I've never seen him since either. Um, and the downtown east side is a small neighborhood. It's it's an inner city, but it's a small neighborhood. You normally see people multiple times. I've never seen him since. Um, and the younger fellow was sitting there. He looked like a young hippie. He had curly, bushy hair, um, and he was just generally shaggy looking. He looked like he was a roadie for the band or something, but he was probably an undercover cop in retrospect. Um, and he gave me some specifics Um like the fact that Willie's passenger door in his car didn't have a handle on the inside. Jeez. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, is this guy just trying to cock block Willie? Or is this true? Because that can't possibly be true, because that can't possibly be legal. But you know what? It is legal. Mm. Mm. It is actually legal. Um, and people knew about it in 1990, but Willie Picton wasn't arrested for many many years after that. Yeah, yeah. Let's So let, let's just pause this scene here. I, I want to sort of explore a few things. So first of all, you your alarms were going off the moment you met him. You said that you saw him like walking around the room, talking to strangers, and everyone's body language towards him was, was very negative, very cold. People were turning away from him. Is that mm-hmm. the main reason that you knew to distrust him? Was it other people's reaction? It was the first sign. Because he hadn't interacted with me in any way. I knew nothing about him other than he was this middle-aged ginger with an expensive camera. Um, so that was a heads up. And then when I sat and talked to him, he did seem creepy. And he was extremely insistent on getting my phone number. Like the most insistent anyone had ever been to that point. And I was pretty cute back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I, I felt super clever when I said, no, no, give me your number. And he did. And I wrote it down in my book. Later, the RCMP were very glad that I had written that number down in my book because it confirmed that I was actually talking to Robert Picton. Right. Wow. And and so these uh, these hippies, as you described them, these people who warned you about him, um, I mean, on the one hand, like, that's amazing. You know, they potentially saved your life. But then on the other hand, how, they knew. They knew what was going on, uh, perhaps... 12 years, I think he was arrested in 2002, so perhaps 12 years before anyone else, they knew that this guy was really bad news. Um, and that's a little bit frustrating because it seems as though it was, it was not a secret that he was, he was up to no good. Um, uh, what's, what's your take on that? Very frustrating. Um, it came out later that the reason the police were not super interested in it was that he was primarily preying on uh, prostitutes, street prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the world didn't care at that time. Most of the world didn't care. And certainly the structures of power didn't care about those women. But Vancouver's a very small town. and It's not six degrees of separation. It's two degrees of separation. For years afterwards, I would go to uh, you know networking meetings in the tech field, and there'd be people there who had lost cousins to Willie Picton. Jeez. Um Eventually, what happened was he 
preyed on the daughter of two very prominent professors from the University of British Columbia. She had a hard time growing up. She um, was multiracial in a white family, and it was difficult for her, and she ended up on the streets. And she disappeared, and her boyfriend and her sister hit the streets telling people there was a serial killer in Vancouver, and the mayor said uh, he was not interested. He said literally, uh, I believe the quote is, I'm not running a location service for wayward girls. Oh, God. Um, and that, yeah, um, that inspired a transsexual madam I used to know named Jamie Lee Hamilton to run for city council. She dumped 60 pairs of hooker shoes on the steps of City Hall when she announced her candidacy. Uh, one pair for every missing woman at that point. Right. And she said, we've got to do something about this. And it's thanks to Maggie DeVries, the sister of Sarah, who disappeared, uh, and Wayne Lang, the boyfriend of Sarah, and Jamie Lee Hamilton, and their combined efforts that Vancouver more or less had to take this seriously. It got on, I think, America's Most Wanted. Um, it got lots of press coverage around the world, and people were saying exactly what you're saying. Why didn't the city do something? Yeah. Why didn't the police do something? Yeah. And it forced it forced institutions which had previously overlooked and discarded these women to treat them as human beings rather than inconveniences. Let's jump into this some of this stuff a bit further down the track because, like, this is a this is a, a big topic in it in itself. Mm -hmm. um, for the moment, let's. I, I just want to move forward in the story a little bit. So, so you had uh, Willie's number. What happened next? Well, I called him on the day that he said that the pictures would be ready, and they were. Uh, so we arranged to meet at this uh, cafe called Tigers. I don't know if it's still there. It was a great place. I love that place. Um, and it was, I was the only person there at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but like I said, he, he was creepy. So I had arranged for a friend of mine to come by at four o'clock. I figure two hours is plenty of time to hand over some pictures and tell some stories about the jazz club. Um, so the idea was she was going to show up and I'd be like, oh gosh, Willie, gotta go. So sorry. Can't come to your place in the country. Yeah. It's a classic move. Um, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's a necessary move, mm. and it's it's a move that undoubtedly saved my oh, life absolutely. again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I was there at two o'clock. Willie came in a bit late. He was uh, very dressed up. He was wearing beautiful clothing. Really? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, he was wearing a Fair Isle vest. He somehow registered that I had a thing for preppies. So he was wearing a Fair Isle vest of extremely high quality. Uh, beautiful wide wheeled corduroys, which were fashionable at the time. Um, um, I think it was a Viella shirt, and those are expensive. Wow. Uh, yeah, I've seen and, I've but, seen photos of this guy, and he he looks completely incapable of dressing up. So this surprises me. Yeah, um, it surprised me too. But then I thought, oh, he thinks it's a date, and he thinks I like preppies, so that's what that is. Um, but as we got talking. It was, well, the first thing that became apparent was the smell. I hadn't noticed it in the jazz club because if you've ever been in a jazz club, there are some interesting smells in a jazz club. Um, but in the cafe, there was no one else but us. And he had this smell that I can remember to this day, and I have never smelled since. It's as if metal 
could rot. Ugh. My family are farmers. I know what farms smell like. I know what pigs smell like. This wasn't that. It was, it was something that instinctively made you recoil um, and soul-deep recoil. Mm. And it, afterwards, I read in the literature, there is a smell associated with demonic possession. This sounds freaky, I know. But there is a smell that has been associated with demonic possession going back as far as recorded history. And... Maybe that smell is not necessarily demonic possession, but something else. Something wrong in the person physically. Wow, that's really interesting. What, a, what an interesting theory. Uh, I mean, like it's a creepy description, uh, the smell of metal rotting. And I'm wondering, you know, like maybe the guy just didn't shower very much. Um, maybe. Uh, but you, it wasn't a human smell. Yeah. It wasn't a human smell at all. It was something that caught you at the back of the throat and scrabbled all the way down to your lungs. It was it was not it was not organic. It didn't smell like anything normal, decomposing. It smelled like metal had gone sour. Like imagine if a volcano had curdled somehow. Oof. That's an evocative phrase. I I mean, you must have recognized at the time. Like, I, I think of all of the things you've described so far, this one feels the most unsettling. You must have really gone, nah, this, I, I, I can't trust this man at all. Well, I knew I couldn't trust that man. That's why I'd arranged for my friend yeah. to meet me later. Um, so that was a done deal. But again, if I hadn't had a friend to, to back me up on this, who knows what would have happened because I wanted those pictures. Um, and he didn't give them to me for a very long time. We were talking, you know, I kept trying to bring it back to the pictures, and he kept talking about his place in the country and all the memorabilia, and we could, we could have a barbecue if I came out. I could maybe stay the weekend, all of these things. Mm. Uh, he said he had boxes full of memorabilia he'd love to show me and so many pictures and stories about the downtown east side, and, and I was just not going to go there. Um, but again, if he hadn't ultimately given me the pictures, who knows what would have happened. In the end, he did show me the pictures. It took me more than an hour and a half to get him to show me the pictures. Um, and when he did, you know, I was covering the closing of a jazz club. I wanted pictures of the crowd. I wanted some cool fashions. I wanted a picture of the band. They were all pictures of women. And... Hmm. Yeah, in in many cases, they were picture of pictures of women scowling at him because they didn't want their picture taken. It was very obvious. Um, I selected two. I selected um, pictures of the waitresses. One was a brunette, and one was a blonde. Yeah. And I remember those pictures. I only ever got one of them back, actually. But that's jumping ahead. Um, yeah, I still remember those pictures. Yeah, and what was your read at that time? My read. Yeah, your read. Like, you know, you, you obviously, um, you, you knew he was a creep, obviously. But at that point <laughs> when you saw these photos, I mean, were alarm bells going off? Did it, did it occur to you that he actually literally might be a serial killer? It did not occur to me that he might be a serial killer. I just thought he was a creep and somebody I, I was going to avoid. I remember looking at him and thinking, my mother had told me to take more chances on men. And I remember looking at him and thinking, you are not the chance my mother would want me to take. No, absolutely not. So then it became, um, 
this is my ego getting in the way, as it always does, it became a game of cat and mouse from my perspective. How could I get out of going to this place in the country? Well, my friend showed up, and she took one look, and she's smarter than me. And she took one look, and she said, Lorraine, everyone's waiting. We have to go. Wow, that's a smart, smart God phrase. Bless her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I paid the bill. I had to pay for his coffee, too. Because although he was wearing a $300 sweater, I had to pay for his coffee. Yep. Nice touch there. Yeah. Um, and I kept the pictures, and I told him I would let him know what the editor said and all of that stuff. And off, off my friend and I went. We went down the street, and we went to a burger joint down the street. And we're sitting there 20 minutes or so, and she says, don't look up, but he's circling the building. As in walking around outside, looking in windows? Uh, well, he was just walking around being casual. Mm. But the, the building, it was a freestanding building, and it had a parking lot in the back. And you could literally walk around the building, and it was on the corner. Um, Granville and Broadway, if anyone knows Vancouver, the aristocratic cafe, which is no longer there. Um, but so we finished up our burgers and she said, I'm going to the washroom. And I said, I will meet you at the door with our coats the minute he turns the corner and then we will go catch the bus. And we will catch the bus, the first bus that comes going in any direction. So we ended up um, going in the opposite direction to where we lived. We ended up at U University of British Columbia, which is the middle of nowhere from the rest of Vancouver. And then we changed buses twice on the way home, just in case he was following us and we hadn't noticed. And we thought, oh, what a grand adventure. How, how jolly. We're so clever. And isn't it sh a shame that women have to do these things? Yeah. Women have to do these things or they can die. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was part of being a grown-up woman. And unfortunately, it was. It might still be. Yeah, dodging, dodging death at the hands of men. Yeah, literally. Yeah. There was a, an incel demonstration in the United States a few days ago, and one, yell, one man was yelling, it's not your body, it's mine. What? Yeah. <laughs> and he meant it. Oh, I mean, it's like... I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what even the appropriate reaction to that is. Like uh, the guy's obviously a bit deficient, or or is just so hell bent on being uh, provocative that he'll say anything. Mm -hmm. Well, our culture now, more even more than in 1990, um, values provocation. Yeah, yeah. Celebrity is is worth more than honor. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. Uh, like um, maybe there's a through line there with uh, with serial killers as well. I mean these these people become kind of rock stars in their own way uh, for having done the most abhorrent things possible. Well, Willie was the police only actually ever were going to charge him with forty nine murders, and that's all that he's ever confessed to, um, and. He apparently told a cellmate, I wish I'd done the full 50. But I know through a very good source, who is now dead, um, that they found the DNA, and by DNA I mean pieces, of 89 women on Willie's farm. Oh, my God. Ugh. It's uh, like at a certain point the numbers just become incomprehensible. That's, it's bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, oh, sorry, I was, I was just going to say let's – Let's let's carry on with the sort of uh, the central thread here. So so after your friend essentially rescued you from this horrible man, uh, what what happened next? 
Uh, well, I got home. I didn't think much about it. Um, I pitched various editors. Um, unfortunately, I pitched one editor. I really thought he'd love this story. And he hated my pitch so much because I used the word yuppies. Mm. And I still remember his rejections. Like, I consider myself and my readers to be yuppies. Oh, <laughs> thanks. To this day, that man won't speak to me. To this day, he will not speak to me. It's so hilarious. Why would he speak to you? I, just because he used, used the word yuppies. Yeah, well, I guess he felt devalued by me. And I guess that makes it mutual. Yes. Um, but e editors are notorious for holding grudges, and so are journalists. Yeah. But I guess I guess he's entitled. Starting out like that, um, you know, I've, I've been a journalist for a long time. Uh, starting out, we're trying to get a foot through the door. God, it's painful. I remember those years. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, those rejection emails. I had one editor reject me. Uh, I'd got a, like a, like I'd put in a tiny spelling mistake in my pitch. And he's like, well, you obviously can't spell. No, thanks. Don't ever email me again. It's just like, oh, God, come on, mate. <laughs> just cut me some slack. I've mostly had good rejection letters. I mean, I still I still have my rejection letter from Spy on paper and everything. Oh, really? I'm going to frame that one someday. Yeah, it said, very funny, but too Canadian for us. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, so you, you pitched this story around. Um, the reception was lukewarm. Yeah, well, nobody ran okay. it. Nobody ran okay. it. I never even put it on my blog. At the time, I didn't have a blog. Yep. Um, I should actually write that story up. That would be hilarious. <laughs> anyway, many, many years later, I guess in, what, 2002, I was over visiting my father, and we're watching TV, as we always did, and he always watched the news. And this guy comes on the news. I said, I know that man. And the announcer said, has just been arrested on suspicion of murder or whatever he said. And, I, and my father looked at me and said, and how do you know that man? Mm. Uh, so then I told him the story. Well, Willie's picture had actually been on the cover of the newspaper for weeks and months at that point. But do you know the difference between a still photograph that's not a very flattering photograph and seeing someone on video? And sometimes you see a still photo of someone who's even your friend and you don't recognize yeah. them. But if you see the video, you'll know exactly who yeah, that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happened. They they had photos of Willie on the front page of the paper along a lot of them, but they were all the same photo. And I didn't recognize him from that photo. But the minute I saw him head on and walking, I knew. Um, and my father said, well, you have to call the police. And I said, but dad, he didn't do anything illegal to me. I said, and he said, no, you have to call the police anyway. Yeah. And I said, I'm not going to call the police and waste their time. They're very busy doing whatever it is they're doing on this case. So he called the police. And then the police called me. So I had them over. Um, two officers came, and they do photo lineups nowadays. They don't make you come into the station and pick somebody out and all of that. Um, but their photo lineups were extremely thorough. Like, there weren't nine people. I think there were 12. No, it would have been more than 12. It, it was a lot of people. Um, and they had me pick them out, not on just one card, but on several different cards. So they had several different lineups. I have no idea where they got so many middle-aged, balding gingers. But they were all middle-aged, <laughs> balding gingers and with vaguely alcoholic-looking faces. And um, apparently I got it right every time. Mm. And I was telling them the story, and I got to the part about writing down his phone number. 
And the officer who was doing the interview said, oh, it's too bad you don't still have that notebook. And I said, it's right here. Oh. And handed it to her. Nice. And her face lit up. And, he, and she said, and the photographs? I said, they're in there. Wow. And she said, wow, it's too bad we don't have the negatives. And I said, well, if you look on the back, this was back in the old days where they were printed at different labs. Oh, yeah. And the labs would print their identification on the back. And you could trace that to the customer. And she, he'd also told me that he got them developed at this place called London Drugs on Broadway. So I told her, and she was like, you are the best. Awesome. <laughs> that's, uh, that's validation for the journalistic work you were doing all those years earlier that uh, those editors didn't see. Thank you. I'm going to bronze that phrase and put it on my wall. <laughs> Well, the, I feel validated. I now. mean, uh, so, so like when when uh, all of this was was validated, you know, like your dad, your your friends and family, they what was the reaction? The reaction was, well, you shouldn't go out then. Just don't go out. Oh well, come on, that's that's hardly practical. It, well, exactly, exactly. Um, and they said, well, if these are the kind of people you meet when you go to these places like jazz clubs or whatever, why don't you just go? Oh, I don't know, lawn bowling or something. And it's not my, like my family was very prim and proper, but they were just, you know, horrified. Yeah. Who wouldn't be horrified? My sister occasionally has said to me, I'd just like to thank you for not telling me what's going on in your life. <laughs> as, though, as though this little <laughs> moment was somehow indicative of all of the other people you were meeting. Well, well, did you read the piece that I wrote for Vanity Fair? I didn't, no. Tell me. It was about my Twitter buddy who became head of hacking for ISIS. Okay. So I have something of a track record. I was just saying uh, to somebody that if I ever do my autobiography, it'll be called Me and the Bad Guys. Now, that's interesting. Because I just, I know them. Yeah? Uh, Would you say that you've got a a certain, not attraction to bad guys, but just like, uh, does the sort of the notion of of badness uh, intrigue you? Do you find yourself walking towards it? I do. I find it, literally. Uh, I used to live on East Pender Street, which is a very busy police operative street with lots of crime and lots of police officers going up and down with their lights flashing. And the dogs used to love when the police would go by with their lights flashing. They'd jump up because they knew it meant I would take them for a walk to go find out what was going on. Mm. Okay. Literally, I would do that. I would go, let's go find out what the police are looking for. So we'd get the dogs on the leash and go on out, out and look. Yeah. I think that what I have is not so much an attraction to danger as I don't have the repulsion from danger. Yes. I'm just neutral. It's material to me. Yes, it's, I relate to that. Yeah. I mean, thousands, millions of people love reading true crime. Um, but I love going out and finding it. Mm. And, you know, as in this case, like the Willie Picton case is taught Vancouver has taught Canada, has taught the world so many lessons about who counts as a human being. Yeah. About uh, compromising power systems. He had the mayor of Port Coquitlam come to his illegal Piggy's Palace nightclub on the farm where these acts were being committed. And it gave him a certain amount of invulnerability. Well, he couldn't, it not, might not be that oh, you don't arrest the mayor's friends. But it might be, oh, well, I guess the people are suspicious, but he can't be that bad. He's a friend of the mayor. Yeah. You know? 
We're going to take a quick ad break here and we'll be right back with more What It Was Like. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you want to give me uh, like a little rundown of of kind of what was uncovered. So so this was 2002. Um, he was in the news. He'd been arrested. You know, what was what was the story that emerged and, and how did you feel? Well, a lot of the story didn't emerge and that still to this day bothers me. Um, I've, Jamie Lee Hamilton was a great source of mine. She was uh, a wonderful woman who did a lot of good for people. She was madam, uh, but she did a lot of good for people and she saved a lot of lives over her the course of her life. Um, and she's one of the reasons people took the Willie Picton case seriously. She told me a great deal. Uh, she introduced me to some of the major characters, uh, uh, the father of Sarah's son. Uh, she, she used to tell me about Sarah's favorite thing to do was to come into her, Jamie Lee's, secondhand shop and try on all the couture gowns. Jamie Lee's clients wives would donate their gowns and she would sell them secondhand. But Sarah would come in and try on all these Chanel gowns and so on that would have been her birthright if she'd stayed with her adoptive family. But it was a future that she could never have now. Mm. Um, but so Jamie Lee had this great perspective and she told me so much about what was going on there. And I have a couple of other sources who are still alive, so I won't tell 
much about them. But they have told me things like there was a woman living on Willie's farm who would just show up around town wearing a full new face of makeup, looking like a completely different person. And it would be because Willie had given her the purse of some woman with all the makeup oh, in it. Oh, no. Ugh. Yeah. What was her name? Dina. I think she died a few years ago. She was a heroin addict, and that's more or less how Willie kept her to heal. Um, the official story from Willie's defense was that Willie was just a puppet in the hands of his much smarter brother, David. David? Yeah, mm. David. Um, the fact that I heard from their literal neighbors was that David was an idiot um, who would do anything Willie told him. Willie was the strong-minded one. Willie was the forceful one. And I believe that. I've met Willie. I have an IQ of 136, but I w don't hesitate to say that Willie Picton is more intelligent than me. Is that right? You, 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 yeah. you, he strikes you as a smart man. He, he very much does. Why? Um, In what way? Well, he could certainly carry on a conversation. He could certainly size up a person. He sized me up pretty well. Um, if it hadn't been for that smell, I might have considered going. Really? But, wow. Yeah. Well, you're young and foolish. Yeah. yeah. And nothing bad has ever happened to you at that point. Yes. Yeah, you might have. Mind you, if I had gone, nothing bad ever would have happened to me after that point because I would no longer be existing. No, no, that's right. And I mean, that's... Uh, when I'm when I'm reading about this case, I keep coming back to just like what was that experience like for these poor women who go there, most of them yeah. on a job, or sort of get into his car thinking, all right, you know, it's like a it's a job, and then and then I'm done, uh, and then just sort of stumble into this nightmare. Um, yeah. I was I was looking through some photos last night, um, some of the police file photos of of just like just various photos from like motorhomes that were parked around his. It seems like he had this horrible, just sprawling property, just covered in like broken farm equipment and and like dirty sheds and and motorhomes. And some of the photos from inside these motorhomes were like just just all this like stained, bloody carpet and and um and just the aesthetic of of like nineteen eighties sort of laminate and uh, like brown, everything's brown and gold and like just horrible. Something about it was just really just, I don't know, it got to me. Yeah, it's like it's like the worst amateur trailer park porn scene. Yeah. With a body count. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. And that's that was his aesthetic. That was what he was into. He, he picked Sarah up more than once. I mean, she must have been truly desperate to go with him the last time because he picked her up. He beat her within an inch of her life threw her out of the car. She had to crawl through blackberry bushes naked and then flag down a car on the highway to get away from him. And then she goes to the police and they wouldn't take her report because she was a prostitute. Oh, that is, that's infuriating. That is, uh, it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. So so when, when all this came out, like what was the, you know, you were living in a city at the time, I assume, were you, were you still in Vancouver? Oh, yeah, I was in Vancouver until six years okay. ago. Okay, all right. Can you sort of tell me about uh, how the city reacted? What was this? I'm assuming there was a period of like kind of civic introspection that happened afterwards. There very much was. Well, not afterwards, before the charges were brought, before the investigation even occurred, when Jamie Lee and uh, Maggie DeVries and Will Lang were, Wayne Lang were out there putting up these posters, people started saying, you know, they're right. There are too many people going missing from the downtown east side. These posters are right. 
there's something going on. Why aren't our police looking into it? And they started, it started to dissipate throughout the middle class. And the middle class started asking the questions. And then the upper class started asking the questions. And essentially, the people of Vancouver forced the powers that be to conduct an investigation, to treat it like a serial killing, to create a task force. Um, I'm still in touch with some of the people who were on that task force. Oh, the Vancouver media police officer was so mad at me. She, I kept emailing her with questions, and she kept putting me off and putting me off and putting me off. So I just emailed the police officers directly. Um, and <clears throat> she, the very first thing she asked me was, what's your deadline? And I gave her a date. I just made it up. Um, and then she didn't talk to me until after that deadline. And then, oh, and I'm now available if you want to talk. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I said, okay, let's talk. Um, but it's not really necessary because I've been talking to the people on the task force. And there was a long silence. And she said, how did you do that? She, she basically accused me of hacking their system. But, you know, their emails were first name dot last name. <laughs> it was a tough one to crack. I tell you, it's, I spent 40 seconds on that. I swear. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, that's just a journalist beefing about media. Yeah, of course. Media liaisons course. who are just blocking officers. It's their job. But okay, so so yeah. the the broader reaction from the city, I mean, I imagine there was like a, you know, who would have thought that a serial killer lived amongst us? Like we're a, we're a God-fearing city of good people and like <laughs> I imagine there was a bit of that. Well, that's not how Vancouver thinks of itself. Okay. Vancouver thinks of itself as a seaport vaguely shady, noir kind of place. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, it was. Uh, Nowadays, it's a glam, Vegas, San Tropez on the Pacific kind of place. But um, it's always had darkness. It's always honored darkness. Uh, Vancouver honors the subcultures of drugs and sex and dishonors the subculture of violence. But in Willie Picton, they brought them all together. Um, Yeah. It, and I said this to Jamie Lee Hamilton, that Vancouver actually values drugs and sex. They, they take pride in that. And she said, you're right. Yeah, they do. But is it tolerating that that got us a Willie Picton? I don't know about that. But yeah, right. Vancouver's not short of serial killers and not short of serial killers who've preyed on the women of the downtown east side either. I was working on a book until it be- it became so depressing that I just stopped working on a book, and I stopped working altogether for a couple of years. Um, it sent me into a clinical depression. But I was before they caught Willie Picton, I was writing a book about the missing women case, okay. and I did a chapter for every plausible suspect, and I got up to ten chapters. Oh, so so just on that point, like it was well known for quite a long time that women, particularly sex workers, were just vanishing off the streets, and that was just an accepted part of living in the city. Yeah, and and this had been going on for decades, and it was just like, oh well, yeah, decades. you know, women disappear. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. See, I, I feel like there's a much broader awareness of serial killers or serial killer be- behavior just just in in sort of the general population like like Netflix and and just uh, true crime um, podcasts have just have just elevated the base level of knowledge about serial killers so I just feel like in a city these days like that maybe just wouldn't happen well it's it's hard to say sex workers still work uh, and they work less publicly now that we have the internet because they don't stand on street corners anymore. They're on Craigslist. They're on 
every other website you can think of. And if they die, it's just the basic problem of getting rid of the bodies. If you have a farm, half the problem is solved right there. Yeah. Yeah. And and I I was reading that uh, Willie Picton would often feed feed these women to his pigs. He had this big yes, pig farm. He um he would grind them up in the wood chipper and feed them to the pigs. And he would do more than that too. He would grind them up and uh, give packages of ground what he called pork to his friends for Christmas. And I'm not joking about that. And that was and and was that was that a mixture. mixture of but there's also a question of what did he do? He had a key to a rendering plant in Vancouver, and that's where he would take his pork products and render them. And did he take human products and render them too? Because he seemed to get off on the idea of mixing these things and, and getting people to consume other people without knowing it. That was something that he seemed to enjoy. Um, so there's still a question of what happened. A friend of mine, I haven't thought of this in years, a friend of mine was hired by the pork marketing board because when the news about Willie Picton and the ground pork and all of that came out, uh, the price of pork dropped by a third in British Columbia. And mm, yeah. I'm unsurprised. And he said, well, what could I say? Hey, all of that has long been since been consumed. I had to come up with something, but uh, I guess that's why they pay him the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Yuck. but but you know, going back to your point about now we're learning more about serial killers. That's true, but it's not necessarily all good. Like the phenomenon of copycat killers is very real now. In Vancouver, again, they had a, a Dexter copycat killer. He saw the show Dexter, and he wanted to be Dexter, and he tried to be Dexter, and he's serving time now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But I mean, like, I don't know. If if you're messed up enough to want to go and kill people, it's it's there's um, there's an argument that you might just do it anyway. You, you don't necessarily. I think I think these days people are people are not so much on a moral axis as they used to be. Like we used to have a moral axis, mm. and shame was a big thing. Can you imagine being a blackmailer these yeah. days? You'd go bankrupt. Nobody would pay you to keep the dirt from them. <laughs> like the, if you read the, the Steele dossier on Trump, I believe the P-tape exists, but I don't think Trump would be ashamed of it. He would, he would play that at his home movie nights, for God's sake. He has no sense of shame. No one has any sense of shame <laughs> anymore. Um, I think that yeah. people these days are more on a notoriety axis than a morality axis, and they want to do what's going to make them famous and gratified. Um, and unfortunately, we see the results of that. I mean, I'm sitting in downtown Ottawa. Um, a few months ago, I would not be able to record this here because there would have been truck convoy horns blaring because um, injured white privilege came down and did a demonstration on Parliament Hill and refused to move for weeks. And the police refused to arrest them. Mm. So, right. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent. Yeah. No, 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 no. I think I think it's a it's an interesting tangent. It's a useful tangent. I mean, that's uh, that, like it makes me think actually. 
bit of a different tangent, but did it occur to you then or has it since that if you were trying to break into the industry and you were covering this story about a closing jazz club, that you'd accidentally just stumbled across one of the biggest stories in the world, you know, of, of, of I guess, the last <laughs> uh, 50 years? Like you could have- I did, and I tried to. Um, I pitched it to Harper's Col- Harper Collins, and it got through two rounds of uh, editorial meetings. But in the end, they turned it down because uh, I would have been a first-time author, and the legal team quoted them $75,000 just to give it a legal read to make sure they didn't get sued. And that's just their standard cost for a first-time Damn. author. And I'm still a first-time author. I've I've worked on four books. I've actually worked on a couple of bestsellers. But as an author, um, I do not have a book under my name, so I can't. It would still be seventy thousand dollars. That's really, really frustrating. frustrating. Well, maybe That's Willie really will die, and then he won't sue me, I, and then I can write the book. Yeah, I mean, surely, surely the risk of him. Suing- no, it's not. He's still got a legal team. He's still got uh, money somehow. Um, and he's not been shy. He's he's he, attempted to sue people from prison. It sounds like he, he was fairly rich and powerful there for a he while. Didn't, he didn't look like it. There's a lot of rich farmers in Canada who don't look rich. He knew how to squeeze a dime, and he the pig business was making him some money. Piggy's Palace was making him some money, and he wasn't, I'm sure he wasn't paying enough taxes on that. Um, tell me tell me about Piggy's Palace. Piggy's Palace was his barn that he occasionally turned into a nightclub and would have the mayor come out to parties and bikers would come to parties. And um, I don't think it was licensed. I think it was just completely, you know, under the table. But it's part of his immunity. It's part of why people didn't go after Willie. Well, he's hanging out with the mayor. He can't be that bad. Mayor wouldn't hang out with somebody who's a serial killer, right? Right? <laughs> of course he would. <laughs> <laughs> Along with all the priests that he wants yeah, to hang out yeah. with as well. It's, I mean, that blows my mind. There's probably uh, dozens of people in Vancouver these days who went to a Willie Picton Pig Palace party back in the back mm-hmm. in the two thousands or nineties, yeah. and that was just a part of their their history. Like imagine imagine going to one of those parties. Yeah, I'd like. I'd never talked to anyone who went, but I'd like to. Um, I have talked to yeah. one of the RCMP officers. There's on the investigation. There were two forces. There was the Vancouver Police Department, which at the time was small and kind of backward, to be honest. Um, and then there was the RCMP. When when the shit hit the fan, the RCMP came in and said, okay, big boys are in charge now. Um, but they worked with the task force because the task force was actually a bunch of very competent police officers of, in the Vancouver Police Department. So they worked with the task force. Um, but I met a, an RCMP officer who was part of the investigation at a Christmas party, and he'd had a few cocktails. And I thought, Excellent. He's in exactly the right frame of mind to confirm the stuff that nobody will confirm on the record. And the stuff that nobody would confirm on the record, this is involved. And this, as far as I know, hasn't made it into print anywhere. Um, This is the scuttlebutt that Jamie Lee told me and was confirmed by two other sources, which I won't identify. Um, But Willie was apparently one of those wannabe bikers. 
He himself may have owned a motorbike, but he wasn't a biker, and he, he just thought the Hells Angels were the coolest thing on earth. And the Hells Angels had a clubhouse not, not terribly far from P- Piggy's Palace in Port Coquitlam. It's still there. And the police raided that place. They raided the Hells Angels clubhouse. And the scuttlebutt, which I heard, was that they found snuff tapes. And that is why they finally looked at Willie Picton. Because as long as he was only killing hookers, you know, it wasn't something that was their number one priority. But when they found snuff tapes, um, I don't remember exactly how it was explained to me, but there was some sort of deal made because if you raid a Hells Angels clubhouse, you're going to find violations, right? It's, it's a given. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't believe there were any charges laid, and I don't think the, the clubhouse was actually closed down. Um, so there must have been some sort of deal made. And it makes sense that if they found those snuff tapes, which the Hells Angels— Hells Angels did distribute things like snuff tapes. Um, if they found those, they could have just used that to say, okay, you tell us who is in these tapes. You tell us where you got them, and we won't close this place down. So it makes sense that that happened. I don't have any eyewitness reports. I don't have any written agreements, but it makes sense. Um, And within weeks, they had served a warrant on Willie's place for, I think it was weapons violations or some, you know, some excuse. And they searched, and then they found body parts. And that's when everything's unraveled. Um, but okay. so, going back to this Got drunk it. RCMP officer, well, this Mary RCMP officer at the Christmas party. Um, yeah, I got yeah. him talking about this. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm always the skeleton at the feast at the Christmas parties because I always end up talking about hackers <laughs> and Willie Picton and the guy I know who was yeah. droned to death by the Americans and like all of this stuff. Anyway, so I got him talking about the yeah. case and I said, yeah, and what about those snuff films? And he said, yeah, right? <gasps> And then he covered his head. He covered his mouth oh, with really? his hand because that never came out in the case. It was never a part of the court case. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Basically yeah. confirmed them, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I wonder what. I wonder what to happens these to these tapes. Are they in a vault? When somewhere? I got the notebook and the pictures back from the police, by the way, after the investigation, after the the trial had concluded, uh, mm. I only got one of the pictures back. I never got the picture of the brunette back. I don't know what happened to that. That's interesting. I mean, it could either mean something or Yeah, I think it probably nothing. means nothing. It's, it's 10 years worth of bureaucracy, and I'm sure things go astray. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Have you ever tried to reach out to Willie Picton in prison, or did you ever have any connection to the case afterwards? I'm still in touch with Wayne Lang. Uh, I'm Wayne, sorry, Lang, Wayne is, Lang is uh, Sarah DeVries' ex-boyfriend. Sarah DeVries was one of his victims. Okay. Um, and... Wayne okay, and Maggie, her sister, were the reason – they were the ones going around putting up the poster saying there's a serial killer on the downtown east side. They are the reason the Willie Picton okay. was caught. There's the reason it was a case in the first place. Okay. And, uh, and I imagine Wayne – you know, Wayne's life must have been turned upside down. It was. He was very much in love with her. And uh, he yeah. started a website dedicated to finding missing people because he said, you know, some of them are just missing. And I hope they all are just missing. But 
Some of them are not, and we need to find the ones who are still alive. And that website was going, missingpeople.net, I think it was. It was going for years and years. I don't think it's still yeah. extant. I want to I want to know so through this case particularly and also through your through your work in general you've explored I guess I guess the notion mm-hmm. of evil which is something that I find really interesting um and it's it's often a question I end up asking on this show um I'm curious to know what you've learned about evil I've learned that society as a whole would prefer to treat evil as mental illness they would prefer to explain it away as a biochemical flaw somewhere and thus not anyone's fault, um, not a choice that someone would make. Um, but also the people who are saying that, they don't know as much about evil as I do because they, their impulse is to look away from it. My impulse is to look at it. Uh, I think that we yep. excuse too much of evil as mental illness. It is not insane to make an evil choice. It's just wrong. And yeah. I, I don't think the world thinks in those terms. So, I, I'm I want to make this like tangible. Like, how do you think it would feel to be Willie Picton? You know, do you think that he woke up in the morning and said, "I'm going to kill someone today," or do you think do you think it was more of like a just an impulsive, chaotic thing that happened when he was in the mood and somehow he couldn't stop himself? Or like. I don't well, know. What's, what's look at what he did with it? me. That was not impulsive. It was opportunistic. But he had a strategy. Yeah. He sized up the mark. He tried to make approaches in various ways. Oh, that one didn't work. Okay, let's try a different one. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, oh, oh she's got the preppy thing. Let's, let's, let's build on the preppy thing and see if that works. Um, I think it was... A part of his day-to-day modus operandi, and it was from what people who were around the farm told me. It was just a part of his day-to-day operation. We'll get in the car, and we'll go cruising, and we'll find ourselves some meat. Ugh, yuck. <laughs> Is, um, I, I guess I'm also just wondering... Like, I wonder if it was like he was treating himself. Like, he's like, every now and then, I'm, like, when an opportunity presents itself, I'm going to treat myself to this kill. Like, it's, it feels good. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like, I don't know, taking drugs or some other, some other short-term pleasure. I wonder if he saw I it think like that. I think that's probably very true. Uh, there was no shortage of cocaine at Piggy's Palace. You could get anything you wanted there. Uh, including some very heavy-duty BDSM. And, I mean, the Vancouver BDSM scene is extreme. Uh, I had a friend who was there, and she said, I know you're not into it, but I'd like to find a BDSM event. So I called someone I know, and she said, there are 17 events tonight. How hardcore does she want to get? Um, and, I mean, the hard, the events that night, which was a Thursday, I remember, uh, went all the way up to, you must bring your own tarp and bandages. <laughs> okay. Top yeah. top is anonymous. On, sorry, anonymous, ominous. Um, but well, it was yeah. the idea that you you have to pick up all of the blood that you spill. Yeah, there there were warnings for you know on room in room D there will be airborne blood particles. Yeah, um, and that's just recreation. Uh, imagine someone for whose whose thirst for blood could not be satiated by just that. Yeah, 
I don't think Willie Picton thought limits applied to him. And in dozens of cases, yeah. it didn't until finally it did. I mean, do you think there, there'd be people that would argue that Willie Picton could be explained away by his childhood trauma? Um, I, I did a bit of reading. It seemed like his dad was abusive. Uh, do you think there's any merit to that? There is some merit to that. Uh, uh, childhood abuse is very, very highly correlated with later uh, violent actions, whether you become a serial killer or not. Um, but lots of people get abused. I was abused, and I didn't turn into a serial killer. Yeah. Um, it, at some point, you make a conscious choice. If you are mentally capable, and Willie was mentally capable, there's some question if his brother was or not. His brother was dumb as a box of rocks. Um, but they had similar tastes, let's say. And then his brother, after Willie was convicted, his brother went floridly in the opposite direction. Although there's some... Uh, question whether it was just a pose to get access to more victims or what. Um, yeah, I I know that it's a component, yeah. but I don't think that it is a an excuse. Yeah, and and have you so in these kind of uh, like let's call them um, profiles of evil? Uh, you know, I know that you've done a lot of research around ISIS. Have have you seen through lines here, or, or are these people compelled by by different interests? They're very different. Yeah. Um, ISIS, for one thing, has a super strong moral component. Yeah. Uh, rigidly, uh, in fact, I, one of ISIS's draws is that it has a moral component, and so much of life does not. It's like grow up in the suburbs, get a crap job, work till you die. That's what Western society offers a lot of people, yeah. and ISIS. Um, in a way, offers them the chance to matter. Long ago, I wrote about the Japanese kamikaze manual. Uh, it offers you the chance to matter, to go down in history, to spiritually accomplish something, uh, to make your family proud of you, uh, to make your ancestors proud of you. And the West, as it currently exists, with neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism and all these things, doesn't offer that to people. It, at best, the world will offer you Tesla at 50 bucks a share. You know, yeah. that's as good as your life's ever going to get. Um, whereas Isis says, you know, live and die for glory. Um, I became involved with Anonymous because, uh, as I've said many times, Anonymous was the most compelling spiritual call to action of my lifetime. Really? Okay. Tell me more about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, when I was like eight, my mother said, you're going to end up in a cult. And I guess maybe she was right, but she was like on me like a hawk because she thought I was susceptible to that sort of thing because I wanted that moral cause. I wanted to be a crusader. I wanted to, you know, for Aslan and for Narnia. <laughs> you just you just can't get that in like suburban Barhaven. No, and it kills me. It kills it, me. I think about Narnia all the time. <laughs> seriously. Like I every day I stay up until 3 a.m. so I can put the target list of the IT army of Ukraine on Twitter and some hacktivist out there can hammer those Russian websites and take them down. Uh, that's It gives me validation. But why do people turn to the dark side for validation? Maybe because they don't see, maybe the positive side rejected them. Maybe they don't think the positive side is glamorous enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I remember... 
The head of hacking for ISIS, uh, Junaid Hussain, uh, whom I knew as Trick on Twitter, he was part of Team Poison, whom I've interviewed many times. Uh, he he said he was interviewed by Softpedia when he was 15, and he said, "If I'm ever caught for hacktivism and I go to jail, it'll just give me more time to concentrate on my religion." Mm. And he was caught, and he went to jail for four months, and they put him in with the ISIS terrorists, and he came out. As an ISIS terrorist. He went in yeah. as an, an, a student of computer science, and he came out as a freaking terrorist. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, system. Yeah, well done, system. That was a brilliant choice. Unsurprising as well. They were like, yeah. they were like, oh, well, they're all Muslims. Let's all put them together, and we can, you know, just use one kitchen, and it's all easier for us. But, like, you don't put some guy who's in there for, you know, taping calls with the FBI— uh, and stick him next to some guy who's an attempted suicide bomber. It's yeah. just not going to end well. I've seen so many people go into prison, and honestly, some of them have come out better people. Um, but that's not the majority experience. No, absolutely it's, not. It's not designed to help people. It's designed to contain people. Yes. And it well, it feels to me that the important thing here is that you've identified that this this particular man was on a search for meaning. He was uh, like mm-hmm. some some sort of larger idiom was very important to him, which made him vulnerable to the kind of teachings of ISIS. I um, I mean, I wonder in a, in his own sort of twisted, insane way whether Willie Picton was was working to some sort of higher calling. You know, do, was this some sort of um, some sort of doctrine around hedonism for him? Do you think? I think that's giving him too much credit. I- I don't think he's intellectually capable of thinking that through or or using it as a justification, but I think that Willie Picton had no higher power than himself. Um, narcissism is highly correlated with serial killing as well uh, because you don't you literally don't care about other people. Narcissism, psychopathy, you know, the dark triad, uh, Machiavellianism, Willie certainly had that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but I think he had no higher, call, higher power than himself. And that's quite common in serial killers. They think they are God, and killing proves to them and to the world that they are God. I mean, like, uh, what comes to mind is is your description of earlier when you first went to this jazz bar and you're watching him, you're watching Willie Picton go up to, to strangers and they're kind of just giving him the cold shoulder, trying to wiggle out of his conversation. In that, like, when I recognize that someone doesn't want to talk to me, I, I find it immediately affecting. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, you don't want to talk to me. What have I done? Maybe I smell bad. Do I look weird? Like, what's happening? Like, it affects me profoundly instantly. But it sounds like mm-hmm. Willie didn't give a shit. He was just like, I'll talk to you and I'll talk to you and I'll talk to you. And, it, like, other people's judgment didn't it, it, matter. That's very astute. It literally was. I remember thinking now that when he was going up to people that, he, would, he did the rounds several times. He went through the room several times. And people who had turned away from him and he didn't get a chance to speak to them before, he noticed that. And he went back to those people and made them talk to him, even if it was just, oh, Willie, hi. And then they could go away. But he went back to them. He was going to break them. He sounds like the most annoying person to, to spend an evening with. <laughs> He was really freaking annoying, <laughs> even without the smell. He was annoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he, I mean, did he have any other characteristics, aside from being insistent around your phone number, uh, like what was, his, what was his eye contact like? Was it was it sort of darting around the room or like what, what other sort of body language markers were there? Uh, he was staring. 
it was creepy. Um, he, like I said, pulled out a, a blunt and was flourishing it around like I was supposed to be impressed by this. I suppose it had worked on other people, but I didn't care. Um, and when he noticed he did, that I didn't care, he put it away. Uh, he... Hmm. He seemed very self-assured, but not self-assured and kind of agitated, like somebody who's had maybe two cups of coffee too much. He wasn't like Coke agitated, but he was just tightly wound. Yeah. But he seemed more commanding than a middle-aged balding ginger should be in those circumstances when nobody else will speak to you in the entire room and there's 300 people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess he's uh, he's got the power of life and death in his hands. Yeah, and he knew it. But so did those other people. And he was, he was left to roam around for 12 years. The police knew about him all the time. But as long as he was just killing prostitutes, they didn't care. Maybe if he'd killed me, they might have cared. Because everybody knew where I was that night. Yeah. I told everybody I was working on this story. And people saw me with him. Maybe if he'd killed me, something would have happened sooner. But you know what? I'm really sorry for the people who died in, the, in between, but I'm not willing to go back in time and live that yeah. reality. Yes, yes. I think we're about done. Um, I would like... To know more about, so you know, you're working on a couple of books. What are you? What's happening for you at the moment? Um, how can I? How can I follow you and keep up with with your latest? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Raincoaster. Yep. Um, but you better be prepare, prepared for swearing in politics because I do a lot of both of those. I'm down with both. Excellent. Well, uh, my kind of people. <laughs> All right, well, Lorraine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you've got a story that you think would work for what it was like, please hit me up. I, I love to hear a bit of feedback or story suggestions or whatever you've got. I am Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffery. It was edited and mixed by Jimmy Saunders, who also did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge, and our intern was Maddie Runting. And this whole thing has been a super real production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.